Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 907. To begin today's program, David Lorla is joined by veteran catcher Alex Avila. The pair talk about things like the multitude of ways baseball has changed during his career, and what it was like to catch Zach Greinke, and which pitcher that he's worked with had the best stuff. I've caught Scherzer, I've caught Burling, I've caught Joel Zumaya way back in the day, throwing 100 plus miles an hour as well, so it's like, pick one of those guys with the fastball. I mean, Justin's 12-6 curveball is probably, you know, one of the, probably one of the best pitches, you know, that I, I have seen. I know he uses more of a slider now, but early in his career, it was more of an overhand 12-6 curveball, power curveball. It's worth noting that this interview was recorded recently when Avila was still a free agent and before he signed his one-year deal with the Washington Nationals. It is also worth noting that today is Avila's birthday. Happy birthday, Alex Avila. Next up, Eric Longenhagen is joined by Keith Law of The Athletic, who just released his top 100 prospect list for the offseason. Keith and Eric talk about things like what they've learned since their earliest rankings, how unreliable reports from the alternate training sites can be, and how they really just need to see some of these guys in game action soon. I'll have Torque and Vaughn like back to back. Basically, they they need to kind of yeah. move together for me. Don't we want? We just want to see those guys go out and hit now. Go out to right. you know probably be different levels. They'll probably be a year apart, but still, like I want to see Vaughn go post a 400 OBP in Double A. I want to see Torkelson go to High A and hit 20 something homers. And I think they're both perfectly capable of doing that. But let's yeah. go, and not on them. Just just we need we need a season to continue these evaluations. Fangraphs Audio is brought to you by our listeners and supporters. Did you hear that we have new coffee mugs? Because we have new coffee mugs, head on over to Fangraphs.com and check out our latest merch. It's 14 ounces and a slick black and green design. We are also on Twitch. If you'd like to see us as well as hear us, check us out at twitch.tv slash Fangraphslive. All of our previous broadcasts are on there, and we are doing more each week. Thank you for all of your support. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest on this segment is Alex Avila, who is, as we are recording this podcast, a free agent. That could potentially change by the time that you hear this. Alex, 12 years have gone by since you caught your first big league game. You are, I believe, about to turn 34, so you aren't as young as you used to be. How much longer are you planning to play Major League Baseball? Well, I would like to play as long as, uh, as, long as I can. Obviously, after 12 years catching in the big leagues, you know, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm, you know, the last uh, latter part of my career. So at, at least for me now, it's kind of more of a year to year thing. I think I would like to play as long as I can. But the way I think about it is after after each season, I kind of just reassess where I'm at, where my body's at and, and then go from there. But it's coming up. I know at, at, at some point uh, in the near future. So we'll see. And once you do hang up the shin guards, you, you do have quite a few options, it looks like. A lot of people have said you you would make a good manager someday. Others have suggested you'd be a good fit in the front office, which is obviously something that, that your father does. But I understand that you're also pondering uh, joining the media landscape and becoming a broadcaster. Well, yeah, I've, I've kind of just been thinking about that a little bit more uh, over the last couple of years as far as which direction I would like to go once I am done playing. I enjoy all the aspects that come with being on the field and maybe coaching or managing because I kind of do that to a certain extent now uh, as, a, as a veteran player. But at the same time, also looking at, you know, like you said, you know, going on the media side or going in the booth or, or an analyst or something like that, because I also enjoy like talking about baseball and um, enjoy that very much. And so 
it's something that I've been thinking about as far as you know the direction of uh, that I would like to take after I'm done playing, and and uh, hopefully when it's time to cross that bridge, I'll have a good idea of which way I want to go. And you have obviously spent a lot of your career in Detroit. So if you do go the broadcasting route, could you imagine yourself in the radio booth working alongside Dan Dickerson? You know, Jim Price is is getting up in years as well. So maybe you could be a former Tigers catcher replacing another Tigers catcher. (laughs) Well, I know both those guys very, very well, and they are tremendous people. Dan, I think, is probably one of the best play-by-play guys in baseball now. And, uh, you know, I know radio tends to have a special place uh, in most people's hearts when it comes to baseball. I mean, it's just, you know, baseball over the radio just sounds amazing. And especially when you have someone like Dan as the play-by-play guy uh, going through it. And I've known Jim for a long time as well. He's been a great friend of the family. And the insight that he provides, uh, not only just like the history, I know people like hearing the old old Tiger stories that he gives, but he's also you know, keeps uh, keeps pace with uh, with uh, all the new players that are going into that team and into that system. But that would be uh, that would be an interesting path, and you know, I think would be a lot of fun. But you know, obviously, we'll uh, we'll see as as time goes on. Yeah, I know from a few conversations with Jim Price over the years that his best stories from his playing days are actually ones that he probably can't can't see <laughs> over the air. I'm sure uh, you've no. heard some of the same ones. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about that. Yeah, so Dan is, from what I've heard, one of the more analytically savvy play-by-play guys mm-hmm. in the business. And that's a huge part of the game. Uh, you've seen it evolve a lot since you signed your first contract 12, 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. How much have you seen the game change over a dozen years? Well, it, it's changed dramatically. With basically, you know, when I first came up, the the only teams kind of really in using analytics to uh, to the degree you see it now is was Tampa Bay and Oakland. And even uh, the way they would use it wasn't so much on the field application, but it was more, you know, towards, uh, you know, acquiring players. Now it's, you know, you use it for both, not only scouting and 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 trying to find uh, value in certain players, but then at the same time, it, it's, it's used so much more on the field as a form of strategy. And uh, that's probably one of the biggest differences, you know, that I've seen from when I first uh, started to now and uh, at the you know, it's to the point now where every team has to has put that in their arsenal, not only from a uh, evaluating standpoint, but also from a, a strategic standpoint uh, to where that's uh, I don't know how much of an advantage it is now because everybody pretty much has the same information, but it's changed quite a bit. And, you know, I've I've had to learn to adapt, you know, not only uh, the way I think about preparing for a game, but then also, you know, in game. Uh, making adjustments because of the amount of analytics and information that's out there now. I think it's great, you know, because there's so much more information that is available to players now. But, you know, I think now the advantage lies in that player that can not only understand it and apply the apply the analytics that is given to him, but then uh, be able to make adjustments and trust his instinct when it calls for it as the game progresses and kind of go away from the book when necessary. With the book in my, in mind, though, Alex, has game calling changed in such a manner that you're recognizing that with different spin and different movement, that you may not call pitches the same way that you did six or eight years ago, even maybe three years ago? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Game calling has, has changed big time in that aspect, mainly because nowadays you have not only you know the information on what the hitter's weaknesses are, and your pitcher's strengths, but then now you can actually match them up not only from pitches because it used to be 
when we look at scouting reports of, you know, one, you try to find tendencies, you know, on that hitter, whether that hitter's hot or he's cold, you know, on that specific night that you're facing him, you know, primarily think, start, you know, thinking about the starting pitcher. And, but then also, you know, your, your numbers that you were looking at were more based on like how, how good is he on breaking balls or how good is he on specific pitches? Now you can, it's so detailed to where you know the exact zones that you can go to on, on certain hitters uh, of the strike zone uh, with what pitches, and then you can match that up to what your pitcher does really well based on his spin rate, his velocity, the movement on his pitches, and then what zones he's really good at commanding and kind of match him up that way. So it's super detailed when it comes to preparing and then calling the game. But then the tricky part is, is, is obviously the game's played by humans. So there's going to be a lot of mistakes and guys, uh, you know, may not be feeling as good on certain days as they would on other days, dealing with injuries, fatigue, things like that. So all those things come into play as the game progresses and you have to be able to make adjustments based on that. That may take you away from whatever the information says the best come with the best possible outcome. And uh, I think that's the tricky part for some players nowadays because there might be a little fear and trepidation going away from the book because if you do, then you have to ha kind of answer those questions if it doesn't work out. Because of that, you may not trust what you see and you know kind of rely on that as a little bit of a crutch. But you'll notice that the guys that can really – the pitchers that can really kind of excel a little bit know when they have to make that adjustment. And sometimes you just have to get through an inning or get through an at-bat, and it may not have anything to do with analytics. And the pitchers that you're working with are not all going to be the same when it comes to game prep and game calling. For instance, I'm guessing Max Scherzer and Doug Fister are different animals. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, when, when you're dealing with pitchers, each guy is going to want you know, certain information that is more geared toward their arsenal, their strengths, and each guy's going to be different in that aspect physically, but then mentally as well when, you know, each guy is also wired differently as far as how much information that they feel they can, they can uh, uh, retain and be able to process and then apply it. Some guys can't, you know, do that at all or, you know, feel like they pitch better without it. Some guys want as much as possible. Like you were talking about, you know, Scherzer, when, when I would catch him, he was probably one of the more analytically minded pitchers that I, that I caught and, and kind of at the forefront of it, too, when I caught him in Detroit, uh, where he kind of looked at some of the more advanced metrics than some of the other guys did and set up his game plan that way. And like you were talking about Fister, uh, he was the opposite. I mean, he didn't want any information at all, kind of left it up to, to myself or whoever was catching him to call the game. And then he was more of a he'd kind of read the swing, read the hitter as the game went on. So each guy is going to be very different in their preparation, not only physically because of their, you know, certain gifts as far as uh, their stuff and mentally and on what really makes them tick. With preparation in mind, Scherzer is very analytical. I looked up the numbers and his kryptonite has been Shinsu Chu, who I believe is 14 for 24 against him. How does a pitcher like Max Scherzer and pitchers across the board assess situations like that? And how do you as a catcher go about changing that, you know, flipping that script and actually having success against a hitter? Sure. Well, I mean, that's one thing that, you know, a pitcher and a catcher always knows kind of going into that night or that day, that lineup, knowing which guy really does uh, damage and hit that specific pitcher well. Uh, I mean, you know that going in. That's something 
you know, it's, it sticks with you um, because one, you don't want that guy to beat you on that, on that specific day. So, you know, you kind of go into it trying to figure out, okay, what have we, what have we tried? What hasn't worked? And it's happened many different ways for me where a pitcher has decided, well, you know, let's just, let's go to different numbers. Let's try this, uh, this sequence or these pitches or this zone with the guy. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't mainly because of execution you know he's got to be able to execute that pitch you know in order to to be successful with it I mean I've had and I've had you know guys where like they just kind of they give it up and kind of give it to you know leave it up to chance and you know just decide to to try to make some pitches and you know either hope that he hits it at somebody or you know you get you get lucky on you know just playing uh just playing the odds as far as him getting out and uh you know so a bunch of different scenarios come into play when when it comes to a situation like that and you know i've i've had guys uh, also tell me look i don't even i'm not even going to i'm not going to shake you when this guy comes up because i don't know what to throw him uh he's hit everything i've ever thrown so you just call it and i'm going to go with you and sometimes it works and all of a sudden you know the pitcher gains confidence again facing that particular hitter and you know you're able to to actually execute a game plan and, and things then work out. So it, it's, uh, it's just, it just depends on the guy really. And how do you approach that Alex as a hitter? For instance, I noticed that you've had success against Trevor Bauer. Do you go into at bats against a pitcher like that thinking about what has worked or do you try to go in with a clean slate and just react? Well, on guys like, like you said, like Bauer guys that I face uh, quite a bit, yeah, I have a good idea as far as what they're trying to do to get me out. And, you know, one thing I've always, you know, been pretty good at is hitting balls in, in the strike zone. Obviously, you know, there's some guys that are out there that are pretty good bad ball hitters and can, and can make solid contact with the, when the ball's out of the zone. You know, when they're a little more free swinging uh, hitters, knowing myself, I know that if I go out of the zone, typically that's bad news for me. And so I have to really concentrate on making sure that that ball's in the zone. And when I'm facing a guy like Bauer that I've faced, you know, quite often, I am, my main focus and concentration is making sure that the ball is over the plate. And then after that, then maybe I'll start to think more situationally as far as, you know, what he's thrown me in the past, you know, on, on certain situations, whether it's the bases are empty, there's guys on base, how many outs there are, stuff like that. So sometimes that comes into play if I'm trying to, you know, maybe guess on a certain pitch, uh, depending on the situation, I might use that information from past uh, at bats against them. But the main attack is really making sure that it's over the plate and a strike, which, you know, that's going to lead me to, to decide to swing or not. And, and from there, that's, it's just a reaction from there. Uh, but the whole, all the prep that goes in prior to that, to, to an at bat against someone like him, someone that I've faced for a while, that's usually kind of my thought process. And then, you know, once, once he, once he's up there, once he starts his windup, it's, you know, see the ball as a strike. And, and, and then at that point, it's a decision to swing or not. And, and Trevor Bauer and you both played in Arizona, albeit not at the same time. As you know, Trevor got some hot water early in his career in Arizona because he wanted to do things his way. And a lot of his way was really an advanced approach to baseball. And that's something that's changed quite a bit. I think that if Trevor Bauer came into the league in 2021, he may not get that same pushback. Do you think that's accurate? No, I think that's very accurate. That's one way that the game has changed as well. It's just the mentality of the game, 
you know, it's become a little bit more individualized than it used to be, a little more specialized, you know, for players specifically as far as what they can do well. That's changed quite a bit. Before, there was more of a team-oriented approach, I would say. You know, it was more like, this is what's worked for us as a team. This is what we're going to continue to do. And that usually would apply to every pitcher, usually apply to every hitter. But nowadays, and I think one of the reasons why is because we have that technology now that gives us the information to actually specifically pinpoint what our players' strengths, let them know what their strengths are so that they can continue to do it well, but then also, you know, show what they might be weak at and explain how they might be able to improve on what their weaknesses are. You know, because of that technology, because of that information we have now, that you're you're better able to not only do it, but also help explain it to players to that that they understand it and understand how to apply it as well. Before that wasn't so much the case, but I think that the information and technology has allowed guys to do that. So the mindset has definitely changed. You caught Zach Granke in Arizona. What was that experience like? It was great. I really enjoyed catching Zach. I've been fortunate in my career to catch a lot of very, very good pitchers and some great pitchers. Uh, I mean, I would put Zach up there in that category for sure. And, you know, he had a very analytical approach as far as his game planning. You know, he uh, he's obviously, it's well documented. He's he's a unique guy, but I found him to be one of my favorite teammates of all time. I enjoyed his company. I love talking baseball. He loves talking baseball and, and really likes the detail of, you know, not only figuring out how to get a hitter out, but then, you know, get through an entire lineup. He knew his body so well to where he can tell you like, hey, I can do this. I can do this today. And or, you know, going into specific stars, like, I can't do this today. We're going to have to stick with this. And he was he was tremendous to catch. And he had such great command that, you know, there were games I would catch him and he's on a roll and, and you barely you barely break a sweat back there. Who has the best raw stuff that you have caught? Yeah, oh man, that's a that's a really tough question. The best raw stuff. Huh? It sounds like I put you on the spot. Yeah, it's not so much. As far as I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, it's more of like, man, I've I've been, like I said, I've been fortunate to catch some great pitchers with incredible stuff that like, I don't know if I could name a guy with, you know, that I think that had probably a, a better fastball or a better curveball. Because, I mean, you know, I've caught Scherzer, I've caught Verling, I've caught Joel Zumaya way back in the day, throwing 100 plus miles an hour as well. So it's like, pick one of those guys with the fastball. I mean, Justin's 12-6 curveball is probably, you know, one of the probably one of the best pitches, you know, that I have seen. I know he uses more of a slider now, but early in his career, it was more of an overhand 12-6 curveball, power curveball. You know, Scherzer obviously has, you know, one of the best changeups in the game. You know, same with, with Grinky. So I don't know if I, I can I can just give you one pitcher. That's, there's, been, there's been quite a few. For sure. Chris Sale probably yeah. uh, would be, be another. He's for sure one of the strangest angles I've ever caught someone from and you know the, the year I caught him he had a tremendous season and like I mean like you said his stuff was as good as any of those other guys that I mentioned so it'd be a tough one yeah have you hit against Chris Sale so when uh when yeah the times I hit against Chris was uh when he his first year when he was coming out of the bullpen for Chicago uh, Ozzy Guillen would use him out of the bullpen when he uh when he first came up and the, the few times that I faced him was when he was a reliever so then when he became a starter, that was that was kind of the day that Jim Leland would say, that's your day off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and this is probably going back to uh, the earlier part of your career as well, when you had some pretty successful seasons. I think you had a 140 WRC plus a few years into your career. 
Yeah, no, that that was definitely a little bit earlier in my career facing sale at the end of the game. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we have, we have time maybe, Alex, for two more questions. Let's go back to the beginning of your career. Mm-hmm. Rick Porcello pitched the first game that you caught in the big leagues. What mm-hmm. do you remember about that day? Well, I remember being very nervous. Uh, I remember uh, somebody mentioning to us, because he was also a rookie that year, uh, that we were the uh, youngest battery for the Tigers in a long, long time. I want to say it was like 50 or 50 plus years. He was 20 and I was 22. So it was uh, it was a couple of green guys uh, going against uh, an Orioles team that was that had quite a few veterans on there. And uh, I remember him throwing a great game and actually having a no-hitter through five innings. And uh, I believe it got broken up by Ty Wigington, if I remember correctly. And uh, But we ended up winning that game, had uh, got my first hit uh, in RBI as well. So it was... Uh, it was a very memorable game. That was a memorable season with the two of us being the rookies on the team and fighting fighting the Twins for first place and then eventually losing to the Twins in, in that playoff game before the all the wild cards. Um, and I guess, I guess the original wild card uh, uh, playing game uh, when uh, when we faced them in a game 163 in 2009 there. So that was a, that was a fun year. And that is the distant past. Let's close with a question with, with the future in mind. And I'm asking this, knowing that you have been a player rep uh, quite a lot in your career. There were a few rule changes this past year. A lot of people now are clamoring for more rule changes to produce more balls in play. What do players think when rule changes are brought up and the greater good of the game is an issue? Well, I think, I think overall players are for being able to, you know, explore ways to, to, to make the game a little, a little more appealing to fans. I mean, that's something that the guys talk about all the time. Not only like you talked about balls and play, but pace of play, things like that. I mean, that's something guys, guys are, you know, always talk about at the same time. I know players are also wary of if that change can affect uh, players' performance, player health, you know, and, and also job opportunities. And that's something that guys are, you know, constantly weighing when it comes to rule changes as well, you know, because typically there's, there, you know, when you're, when you're changing stuff, there's always give and take. And typically most people are always a little hesitant about any kind of change, especially when you're talking about a, you know, a sport that's been around for over a hundred years, you know, and, and in our sport where it relies heavily on tradition. And that's one of the beautiful parts about the game. So it's a little bit of a give and take, but I know players on the whole, on an average are, like the discussion because they want the game to evolve but at the same time it's something that that is kind of treaded a little bit lightly i think with with some guys because you know it's changing something they know and that could always be a little difficult uh to do at first and um but you know i i do like the idea that major league baseball they tried certain things in the independent leagues and and the minor leagues prior and see how things go you know that i think helps guys see how certain rule changes might work but overall, it's, it's a tough back and forth, I, I should say, because guys like the idea of the game evolving, but also are, you know, concerned about, you know, all the, um, the consequences that may come from that as far as uh, different rule changes. So if you do join Dan Dickerson in the booth a few years down <laughs> the road, it sounds like you will be an analyst who accepts change and maybe necessarily won't ask the kids to get off your lawn, but you'll maybe, you'll maybe understand that tradition matters. Well, it, tradition does matter, but at the same time, you should, you know, constantly evolve and learn and be willing to change. It's, 
it's part of life and it's always good to go into you know life with an open mind so that's that's something that i always tried to tried to live by and understand words well spoken alex thank you very much for your time i am david laurela that was alex avila and thank you for listening to fangraphs audio Hello and welcome to another Fangraphs audio segment. I am Fangraphs lead prospect writer, Eric Longenhagen. I'm joined today by the claw man, Keith Law from The Athletic. Keith, how's it going? Good. Much better since my top 100 is out in the wild and I can stop worrying about it. How late were you up last night, the night before publication? Actually, last night was fine. We put it completely to bed by 9 o'clock Eastern. And then my daughter and I watched a couple episodes of The Mandalorian and then we all went to bed. So a couple of nights before that, I was much later dealing with stuff, but I was ahead of schedule this time, which, you know, I usually try to do because there are multiple editors trying to work on this and get art and format. I actually helped with the formatting once, which made me feel like very important to go in and bold certain things and put in, putting in player ages was my last, the very last thing I did, uh, which was kind of funny because I discovered that Brian Hayes and Matt Manning, who are both on the list, both have their birthdays today. Oh, I love when that happens when I'm like working on a list and a guy's birthday is the day of publication right. or whatever. Yeah, it's such a bizarre thing to be like, oh, it does give you a little jolt of like, hey, good for this guy. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this was how long have you been been, been doing this now on the public side? Uh, my first top 100 of any sort was January of 2008. So this is my 14th list. How would you describe at that that time that mm-hmm. first those first couple that you did for ESPN? Mm-hmm. What was your initial process for gathering the information and what were some of the, the broad strokes philosophical things that you were applying to ranking the players? Definitely the first two or maybe three lists. And I think the year before that I'd just done because I had joined ESPN not very long before and hadn't even been there a full year. So I did like a top, I think it was a top 25 or something just to, to plant, you know, plant a flag somewhere. So I didn't know a ton of people. That was my biggest problem was that, you know, I contacted kind of everybody I knew who might've seen some players who might have opinions on this. And I'd gone to see as many players as I could the previous summer and fall. I did a fall league trip, which has been my norm ever since up until last year, actually. But it was definitely, I don't think I had anywhere near the breadth of information that I have now. I was just sort of working with everything I had, but it wasn't really anywhere near enough by my standard today. And I think I was probably also still a little too performance heavy where, you know, it's funny that at the time we had nowhere near as much data as we have now, but I think I leaned on the little data that we had a little too much in those first few years and thus was lighter on some players who maybe had more long-term projection or, you know, fell in too much with players who'd performed well in the previous season or just in too small of a sample. So even though I think now I don't rely quite as much on the performance data, even though we we have a whole lot more, you know, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is hopefully I strike a better balance. Now I have so much more information. Typically I have so many scouts and executives I can talk to, and I've seen so many more players myself and can now also balance that slash integrate it better with this deluge of additional data that we have. That's not just performance now, but the much more granular data about swing types and launch angles and so much data, particularly on different pitches that we can incorporate into into our rankings. Yeah, I found that, and I'm in the, I suppose, I guess it's the middle of 
the process right now. Mm-hmm. And certainly in a year like this where there's no real live looks other than the little bit that folks saw at Instructs, maybe if you get lucky and talk to a scout or executive whose job it was to watch alternate site video, mm-hmm. that just the visual evaluation, in my opinion, is way more important for hitters than it is for pitchers, especially in a year like this. Like, I don't really care how well Julio Rodriguez did at the Mariners alternate site because he was facing the same handful of mediocre or underdeveloped Mariners pitching every week for several weeks. Like there's a reason that there's like a three time through the order penalty that those pitchers faced against Julio and Kelnick and those guys. Yep. The pitcher data is just sort of what it is. There's just something independent about pitching that makes it much easier to evaluate via the tech and that type of data. So I'm curious, aside from that, what were the other main arteries of information that caused you to move guys around in a year like this, where we didn't really have nearly the same type of information as we would over the uh, typical calendar year. What was the, what were the reasons that you found yourself moving guys for? Like you said, we have basically very little data. So it was, the first thing was we had a bunch of players graduate. Three people have already asked me why Gavin Lux isn't on the list. He graduated. He's not a rookie anymore. Like, yeah. And somebody else was like, oh, he has the yips. And it's like, you know, he had definitely had throwing issues before, but no, 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 he's, he's not a rookie. I mean, that's just the whole thing. There's a lot of those players. Brendan Rodgers graduated from the list also. So we lost a lot of those guys. And then we add all the draft guys, you know, of which I think I have, I don't know, between 10 and 12 on my list. So that was the natural change to the process. Then there's, so what do you do with all of the returning players? Well, I did talk to somebody from every club or what'd you see? You know, they had a little bit of spring training. They had their alternate site. You know, they had spring training 2.0. They had the alternate site. And most clubs, not all clubs, most clubs held some kind of instructional camp in the fall. So I talked to people about all of those. And I did, I said in my intro, like, I had to lean on that a little bit more than I usually do. Usually I, you know, to me, that's sort of a trust but verify sort of process. The verification was much less present this year. I did talk to some scouts who saw instructional league stuff. I know you have too. You and I know some of these same scouts, as it turns out. And so also tried to incorporate that. There are very few players on the list who made substantial changes who, where there's a substantial difference in my evaluation from a year before based solely on what the team told me. Probably the largest, the biggest example I can think of, and I feel like you and I may have even discussed this player, is Jaron Duran, where there's a pretty significant swing change, but there's also public video where we could see that the swing was different. Yeah. So there's a little more reason to buy into it. But at the same time, the exact issue you just brought up around Julio Rodriguez, where I think you and I are pretty well aligned on that particular player too. You know, Duran looked great at the Red Sox alternate site, facing his teammates, right? They're not busting him in with fastballs and risking breaking his hand, right? They're not, okay, they're trying to get him out. They're not really trying to get him out. It's not the same thing. And so everybody looks great at the alternate site. Bobby Witt Jr., I heard, looked great at the alternate site. There was a player the other day, somebody was telling me, oh, this guy hit 12 home runs for us at the alternate site. Uh, uh, Okay. Yeah, the environment is just not even close to a facsimile of a real competitive environment that you would find over the course of the season. When your hitting coordinator is playing right field. Right. And he's built like Rod Beck. (laughs) (laughs) R.I.P. Yeah, people aren't actually playing hard. And this is one of those things like the velocities at the alternate site were down about a tick and a half on average, which I wrote about. And my raise list went up today. 
And uh, yeah, she, like Shane Boz was 93 to 96 at the alt site after he was 95 to 99 here in Arizona in the fall of 2019. You don't really have anything between fall of 19 and when he was at the alt site to compare. Like he didn't even throw during spring training 1.0. So you can't see what it was like if this guy was going to air it out against big league hitters and that adrenaline's pumping. Right. And so what do you do with that? Do you go, hey, Boz's velocity is down? Or do you say, well, he's working as a starter. The changeup is back in the mix. It's not really competitive. He's 21. I don't think I did that with any pitcher. I'd have to look. I juiced some guys. Yeah, I went up but not down. Like you mentioned, the yeah, I moved some guys up. Yeah. I think you had Quinn Priester towards the back of the 100 for similar reasons. You know, Priester was throwing really hard in the fall. Mm-hmm. I'll have Seth Johnson towards the back of mine. Mick Abel, I think, will probably sneak onto the back of mine. Like the guys who showed a, a pretty significant increase in velocity. Although the context of that look is important too because it's this guy has had a year and a half off mm-hmm. in the case of like Abel. And he's going, what, a couple innings at a shot here? Like, so it's not as if he's pitching every fifth day and it's July and he's done that since April or May. Uh, and he's still sitting, you know, four to seven. But I think that, yeah, some of this stuff is difficult to, with with the hitters too, a lot of times it's, hey, look, Jaron Duran's swing is different and his ground ball rate has taken a huge dip. He's hitting the ball in the air more. And mm-hmm. there's like, there's other corroborating evidence that gives you confidence that the swing change is meaningful, not just that it occurred. And so like with Duran, his he didn't hit for power in Puerto Rico. You know, after all that at the alt sites, right. he went to Puerto Rico and didn't really hit for power. So I was skeptical and kind of held him out of there, but he's not far behind like the back of where my 100 is. I think I 45'd him. So mm-hmm. I've got like a fourth outfield grade on him, but like that's a good player. Fourth outfielder is like Seth Smith. Like that's one and a half, two war guy annually. That's a good player. Yeah. All right, well... Let's see. If I were to go back mm-hmm. to your list from somewhere between 2008 and 2010, yeah, who are who are some of the guys off the top of your head that you know you were wrong about, mm-hmm. and based on what you know now, know that you wouldn't have been? The one that always bothers me, and this was just a case of over relying on what I saw, was a player named I don't know if he said German or Herman Duran. He was a college guy. He was like a fourth round pick or so out of a school, I think maybe Texas Arlington. And I swear to God, that guy was like 12 for 10 with me in the ballpark. It's just every time I saw him, Futures game, Fall League, wherever, he just hit. He just hit all the time and he seemed to be hitting everything particularly hard. And I was like, okay, well, this guy, you know, he's hit well. He's a college guy. He's not that far away. He's, you know, not a superstar, but I think he's really going to hit. You know, I like the swing, et cetera. And He got hurt the next year and really just never came back and probably was just never that good in the first place, right? But I just, between seeing so much of him myself and just, again, seeing him hit the ball hard all the time. I mean, I'll never forget, there was a guy when I was with the Blue Jays named Nate Southard, who was from Tulane, who hit like a buck 80 on the Cape. And I think I saw all his hits. It was just every time I was there, this guy was just hitting line drives to the middle of the field. And finally, you know, the summer came, end of the summer came, Wait a minute, this guy only hit, I thought this guy would have hit 300. All he was doing was stinging the ball when I was there. And I think in the case of Duran, I sort of fell a little bit for prey to the same thing where it was hard for me to, I mean, it's the kind of biases I wrote about in the inside game, right? It's This was what was available. It was literally right in front of me. How do I ignore what I just saw? And learning to put what I would see myself in proper context, 
And then also at the same time, and I could go for players who I saw really terrible. Gio Gonzalez would be an example of that. And learning how to blend that with players I just didn't see was a huge part of making the lists something that I could be proud of, something I think reasonably represented a, a useful look at the industry as a whole that people could rely on and that people, especially the thing for me has always been, do people in the industry look at my lists and find them valuable, see the work that went into them, believe them to be objective and you know, a good combination of evidence-based and incorporating my own opinions as well. And I, I mean, I do think people do that now just based on what they tell me. I don't think that was true of the first couple of lists. I just don't think the first couple of years were very good. I think I was learning how to do a lot of this stuff and still probably working on my scouting eye too. You've gone through the same process, right? The first couple yeah. of years, you know what it's like. You're, you're guessing a lot and you have to go out and evaluate players and then see how they do to figure out if your evaluations were any good in the first place. And until you've gone through that cycle for a little bit, it's really hard to uh, figure out, well, am I any good at this evaluation thing? So I had to do, I had to have a couple of top 100s that just weren't really that good. And I'm not really excited about in hindsight. I still have, you know, I still have them all in a spreadsheet. I have a spreadsheet with all my top 100s that I've ever published, but I don't look at those first couple tabs very often. Yeah. Those, uh, it's good that you have those because of when you go back to the ESPN user interface. You can't find them. Yeah, yeah, you can't find them. Some of them are uh, just gone. They're just permanently gone. And, I, you know, thank God I save still to this day with The Athletic. You know, we put all our stuff into the content management system, but I save local files of everything. I have everything I've ever written. And maybe that makes me an old man, which I am, actually. In fact, I think my new eyeglass I'm wearing. Do you have a monocle? Now, I actually could use a monocle because it's one <laughs> eye in particular. But I'm getting glasses. Today, my first ever pair of prescription glasses. Is uh, that's interesting. I'm 47, and I finally had to, had to give in. So I am an old man, but I like the local files. I like knowing that I have them and that being able to cert. I got to tell you, going through this, especially this year where it's like, well, wait, what did I have on this guy last year? Because he hasn't actually played. So let me make sure I'm not actively contradicting myself. And so being able to quickly search and go back and say, okay, this is what I said on you know, Quinn Priester a year ago. And just making sure that I'm consistent right. with myself. You know, that's, I know that I can use that stuff, right? I can use that data because I, or that information because I collected it myself. So that's fair game. But I had to make sure I was consistent year to year. It was just easier for me to search that on my own hard drive than to try to find it on the athletics site or previous to that or finding it on the ESPN site. Yeah, I think, uh, and we'll talk about some players here in a second, but one less methodological thing. Mm -hmm. What are some of the, like, as I'm sitting here looking at, my first pro ranking from 2017 what are some of the mm -hmm. things that immediately come to mind as red or yellow flags when you're thinking about players mine are like here i'm staring at this ronaldo lopez jason groom and riley pint are all in the top 35 there's delvin perez there's brent honeywell there's robert gesellman there's colby allard so just being properly scared of pitching <laughs> is is one of mm -hmm. those things mm -hmm. there's jeff hoffman and hey look there's mitch keller that one was right yep. 46. Yep. There's Kevin Maitan. Great job. Mickey Moe. Mm -hmm. Then there are certain mm -hmm. types of swings, and I'm sort of having a come-to-Jesus moment about these long-levered dudes who are built like wide receivers. Like, here's Lewis Brinson. Here's yep. Corey Ray and Estevan Florial, whose swings work in almost exactly the same way, or rather don't work, work yeah. in exactly yep. the same way. How about you? What are some of the things that, if you could go back and tell yourself 10 years ago, hey, be wary of these corner guys who swing at everything or whatever it is so that you're not on Francisco Mejia so mm -hmm. heavy or whatever. Do you have any sort of heuristics like that now? 
Well, it's funny. The one, one of the biggest ones for me, and I did, I have incorporated this into my draft rankings is to back off high school pitchers. Yet, if you look at my top 100 this year, it's extremely pitching heavy. And I just actually think that's just a function of the player pool right now. A lot of the position players ended up kind of in the big leagues or your position player. You know, we need to see guys hit, right? It goes back to what you were saying earlier. It's much easier to figure out how to interpret information on pitchers working at an alternate site or in instructs than it is to, inco- to figure out what to do with hitters in those same settings, particularly from the alternate site. But in general, going forward, and certainly this will be on my draft list and my pro top 100 list once we have minor league games again, you're going to see me tend to rate pitching lower uh, just because of the inherent risk of it. And particularly teenage pitching is going to be lower. And it's not, you know, obviously there's the Forrest Whitley's and the Brent Honeywell's and guys who are not teenagers who also still get hurt and maybe need to be ranked lower. But in general, I'm definitely going to be much more cautious on ranking teenage pitching, very young pitching as highly as I have in the past. And again, as highly as I did this year, which was sort of antithetical to what I believe to be the best way to go about it. It's just, those were the players. This was, this was all I had to work with at right. this point. And also the, the other thing is I'm, it's probably a broader extension of the point you just made, but it's like, man, if you, if you're playing a corner and I'm really thinking first left, right, third base is a little different because you can add so much defensive value to Brian Hayes, who I've had stuffed for years um, and is still very high on my list this year. It's a month. We saw a month in the big leagues, but guess what? I can really add a lot of value on defense. So there's something there. You're not going to add that probably in first, left, right. And so I've tried to be, and this has been going on for years, but much more, hold those guys to a higher standard. You better hit. You better really show me you're going to be able to hit. And even like a Spencer Torkelson, who's a very good prospect. But, you know, he was not my number one overall guy in the class. He's not in my overall top 10. And that's not because I think there's something wrong with him. It's it's first base. You got to really hit. Hit, in his case, you know, he's probably going to have to hit. Get on base, hit for power. Because I personally don't think it's. I'm. I'm fine with them trying him at third base. But if I'm a realist, he's probably going to end up playing first base in the majors. Yeah. So specifically on Torque and then Andrew Vaughn, and I suppose you can. Well, you absolutely can lump Peter Alonso and mm-hmm. Reese Hoskins into this bucket as well. Yep. It was something like 20 years since someone who went to college as a first baseman did nothing but play first base in college and is a right-handed hitter. It did anything at all in the majors, like period. It was Eric Karros and then Goldschmidt, who I think even maybe played some third base in college. He was like an eighth um, round draft pick. And that it. Right. Yep. Like that's it. And now all of a sudden it's I mean, the fact that there are even mm-hmm. four of them is kind of incredible. And yeah, I'll have Torque and Vaughn like back to back. Basically they they need to kind of yeah. move together for me. Don't we want we just want to see those guys go out and hit now. Go out to right. you know probably be different levels. They'll probably be a year apart. But still like I want to see Vaughn go post a four hundred OBP in double A. I want to see Torkelson go to high A and hit twenty something homers. And I think they're both perfectly capable of doing that. But let's yeah. go. And not on them, just because we need we need a season to continue these evaluations. You cannot feel very uncomfortable about hanging with college, what are essentially college evaluations of these guys for very long because you know that's even the moment they come out it's not a great reflection those guys played in the pack 12 which has not really had very good pitching the last couple of years and it's a tin bat not a wood bat you can only go so far with that at a certain point you just have to see these guys play and, I, and the teams feel the same way all these front offices all these player development guys you and, and i are talking to they desperately want some kind of season. It's less about, you know, their fans. What can, you know, it's not about the economics of it. It's the, these guys are not going to continue to develop unless we have actual games at the minor league level versus this alternate site stuff. 
Yeah, even as teams have shifted away from using or leaning exclusively on in-game action as a yeah. as a tool for teaching and development, there's m- much more going on in a classroom environment. Again, especially as far as the pitching is concerned, just because it is such an independent activity. And even in a virtual reality setting, there's stuff has begun to become more pervasive. So, But at some point, all of these guys are different types of learners. And the procedural elements of baseball need to become intuitive to these guys so that they're not thinking about it on the field at the highest level so that they just know where to go with the baseball defensively or whatever it is. Situational baseball should just be hardwired into everyone's brain by the time Mm -hmm. they're at the big league level. Uh, And I just think you need reps to do that. All right. So on specific players, who are some of the prospects who, during the course of you shuttling this list around the industry, you received conflicting (laughs) feedback on, not necessarily based on where you had them ranked, but you had some sources telling you move them up and some others telling you move them down. Uh, I'm going to pull up my list here. I will start with some of the guys as you do that. For which, as, during you know, I've already sent the rough yeah, cut and I talked around to some also, folks. And we talked about your list. So right. Even looking towards the top, where's the highest guy I would say I got some feedback? My first one on your list is Austin Martin, where the impact con, like the the level of impact contact is not high enough for some people. Like they just don't think he has real power potential. And when you combine that with fear based on the early 2020 look that he can't play a premium position, that he was more like an average runner early in the 2020 season. And he was widely seen that those first couple weekends, right? Like in Arizona here with me when Vanderbilt played that tournament and he couldn't throw from third base to first base so they moved him to center field, and then there just wasn't a whole lot of time to look at him out there, although he had played there some as an underclassman. And then you combine some of those fears that, hey, worst case scenario, this guy's a left fielder. Yeah, I got to say, I don't buy that at all. That guy's like an off-the-charts athlete with ridiculous bat speed. I have seen him run above average to plus. I have no doubt. And, I mean, according to the Blue Jays, this throwing thing was not an issue by the time they got him over the summer. So there's not a serious injury. He doesn't seem to have the yips. Now, if he comes out in the spring and he has the yips, yeah, I'll have to reevaluate. But based on just a couple of weeks where, by the way, didn't he like strike out two times in four weeks before the season ended? Like This guy's going to get stronger and he's going to hit for a high average. I don't think he's going to hit 30 home runs, but the chance for him to play a premium skilled position and for, for whatever it's worth, nobody pushed back on where I had Martin. He ended up 14th on my list. To me, that was that was a pretty easy call, and I've seen Martin a lot. I uh, did not see him this past spring, so I'm as an underclassman and was completely in on him. And I think Spencer Torgelson's a good player, but if you're telling me I got a chance to get an up the middle, potentially up the middle guy with some impact at the plate versus corner guy, I will die with the middle of the field guy every time. Yeah, and I think that's fine. And like I said, these are the guys who I've the feedback has been in conflict. So I have Martin. At the end of 2020, and as I'm passing around the rough draft of the 100, he's closer to 40 overall. And still, there is, you know, some people are just like, hey, this guy's got elite strike zone control. Like, what's the worst case scenario here that he's Ben Zobris? That's mm-hmm. a, that seems good. So, all right, let's talk about some guys who you have back to back. And I love sticking the guys back to back on the list in a way that is instructive mm-hmm. in some way. So at 23 and 24, you've got Corbin Carroll the Diamondbacks outfielder, and Julio Rodriguez, the Mariners outfielder. Do you want to talk about, I think this is really interesting, and I and I do think it's instructive as far as where the two of them belong. Why Corbin Carroll over Julio? 
Carroll's got a chance to play in the middle. Pretty good chance to play in the middle. Julio's just a corner guy. Carroll's got way better strike zone judgment than Julio does. Yeah, not, not even close. close. Julio's one of those long, you made yeah. that comment before about these long levered corner outfield guys. That's Julio. His swing can get long. And I like, obviously, I'm ranked Julio. Somebody was complaining. Julio's lower than he is on any other list. Okay, first of all, I don't give a what anybody has on their other lists, right? That's not how this works, right? None of us are compiling other right. people's lists. It's important for us to be independent of one Absolutely. another. So it's not like the 2016 election polls, yeah. you know? You and I are probably the most philosophically similar, and we still differ on a lot of players. We absolutely still differ on players, as we just saw with Austin Martin. Like, that's just going to happen. We shouldn't all have the same lists. That would be weird. And there's a small sample size thing at play there too, right? Because I only have so much time to talk to, you know, a half dozen people about whoever, Austin Martin or whatever it is. Right. And sure, there might be some overlap, especially because you're probably going to talk to someone with the Blue Jays at some point. You know, both of us will. And mm -hmm. it's likely to be some of the same people for some of these players because the orgs push forward certain front office personnel to talk about their own players because mm -hmm. some of them are better at it than others. But yeah, like I think it's natural for, the, for, the, for there to be variation. And in this case, like, look, I watched a lot of Dominican Winter League. The Dominican Winter League pitching ain't as good as big league pitching. It's not even as good as double A pitching. And mm -hmm. it's fine for Julio to be struggling against that caliber of pitching right now because he's a kid, but he still was. And yeah, he chases an awful, awful lot and is a corner guy where there's no margin for error for that type of thing. And then the variability I saw in his front foot where its landing spot was earlier in his career, where he was augmenting where that front foot landed based on pitch location in a way that reminded me of Miguel Cabrera. That's gone. This is a bucket strider, hey, I'm trying to pull the ball every time I swing type of hitter, or at least he was for most of the Dominican Winter League. And it really impacted his play coverage. And so when you can't ID sliders and you're pulling off of everything, that's a problem because all those you're just going to swing inside all of those sliders. And that's what was happening in the DR. And I still love Julio and he belongs stuff. Obviously, I do, too. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. We still love him. But like Kelnick, you got to have him ahead at this point, I think, oh, just yeah. based on the winter league look. He's just he's a more polished hitter and yeah. also has a chance to play in the middle. And that was the yeah, one thing Carol's that amazing. Julio has over Carroll, right? Carroll, I think Carroll's a legit five-tool guy. I think he's stronger than anyone gives him credit for. You know, I think there's a lot of Alex Bregman to his game. But he's, what is he, 5'10", 5'9", 5'10". And Julio is bigger, taller, probably just going to end up with more raw power in the end. Now, he, if he had Corbin Carroll's approach and plate discipline, well, he'd probably be a top 10 prospect. Oh, yeah. Certainly, if he could play in the middle of the field, he would be a top 10 prospect. If you put Corbin Carroll's skill set in Julio's body, he's the second best prospect. Yes, right? Right. And that is a good, you know, this kind of circles back to what we started this conversation about too, was sort of what kinds of information are we able to use at this point and how to integrate them too. You've got two guys who both are both are outfielders. Both are highly touted. Carroll's one in the Diamondback system for me and Julio's two in the Mariner system. And they're pretty different. Like they're physically pretty different. Their level of polish right now of sort of, you know, on-field skill versus tools, you know, their skill levels, present skill levels are very different. And to Julio's credit, he's, he's a, by seasonal age, he's a year younger than Carroll. Yet I'm essentially saying they're equivalent in terms of their prospectdom, in terms right. of their general value. You know, Julio carries a lot more risk to me. Carroll's going to be a big leaguer probably for a long time. I don't know you know, does the lack of height limit his ability to be a star or is he just hitting the ball so dang hard as it is that it's not going to matter? The only negative thing I've ever heard about Corbin Carroll from scouts is that he's short. 
And I'm like, again, Alex Bregman is basically my height and he's okay. Yeah, Wander Franco isn't big. No, he's not big. <laughs> no, there's plenty of short guys who hit the ball really hard and those guys can play. Now, yeah, there's probably some cap on how good those guys can be. Maybe not because Bregman is basically MVP level good, but we have to be aware of the guys who are, who physically somehow deviate from the norm and yet continue to get it done in tangible ways to show us in the data, whether it's performance data or the kind of more granular data like we've been talking about here, that, hey, you know what? They're hitting the ball plenty hard and they're hitting it at the right angle and they're using the whole field and we can see in the data that they're doing so. That, yeah, he's still, Corbin Carroll might be 5'10", but he's still likely to produce in an across-the-board way if he stays in the center of the field, that he, he will still be a star, even though he's never going to see six feet. All right. Do you have any supplementary content coming, like just missed guys or? Yeah, I don't know when that's going to run, but okay. I have it. I have a list. Actually, right now, I probably have 15 guys on my just, usually I only do 10 guys on the just missed list. Some years it's been as few as six or eight. For whatever reason, this year, I just had more guys. You know, Josh Jung was a guy, it's like, could you argue for him on the top 100? Absolutely. I have no issue yeah. with you. If somebody says he should be 95 on the list, absolutely. I'm completely fine with that. Yeah. For just to speak to Young, like, yeah, for this is where the methodological aspects of it come into play, right? Like, Young was not on my 100 last year. He was in the mm-hmm. 45 plus category mm-hmm. where it's, hey, this is a valuable role playing type guy right now with a chance. The plus is, hey, this guy has a chance to like blow up. And in Young's case, it was if he starts pulling the ball, which he just didn't do in college. Right. He was just peppering center field and the right center field gap exclusively mm-hmm. when I saw him. And then this fall, he started pulling the ball. So he'll be a 50 for me now, somewhere towards the you know back of the 100. And like, yeah, so the just missed and 115, it's exactly the same guy. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's the thing, right? Between 90 and 120. I'm not going to rank to 120, but the difference between the guy 90 on my list and the guy 120 on my list is not very much. And certainly if you were, if you think of these rankings almost as having error bars or confidence intervals around them, those two overlap. Whereas I would not say that's true with 10 and 20, right? Up at the top of the list, we probably both feel much more confident in the rankings that there's greater separation between the tiers. But when you're that far down into the list, there's just wider ranges of potential outcome. So to, to answer your question, the just missed list is probably just going to run next week. And then it's the week after that. So once this, there's some football game coming up, I forgot what it's called, but after that, then it's all my team by team top twenties and my ranking of all the organizations. And uh, I'm not sure whatever else exactly is going to come out of that. We may, I'm going to, I may dispense with some stuff. Usually I would say, here, here's a prospect in each system who's really fallen off in the last year. I'm not going to do that this year, right? Because it's not fair to anybody. Nobody yeah, fell yeah, off true. this last year. So that's a, it's a way to just make my life a little bit easier, not trying to like force something. And also, like, I want to be very generous to players and to teams at this point. You know, 2020 sucked. And so let's give everyone a clean slate. And hey, if you're, this particular player seemed to be off in 2020, hopefully we get something of a season this year and he gets a chance to erase it. Well, for what it's worth, Keith, I think if you put on the Super Bowl and and watch number forty five for the Bucks, Devin White, I think you'd even you'd get a charge out of that. That dude is unreal. But um, oh. thank you for joining us on this segment of Fangraphs Audio. Folks should go to the Athletic, as my grandfather would say and Charles yes. Barkley would say, to check out Keith's content, the one hundred and all the other prospect content he's got going on. Do you have any spring plans? Do you have any pre draft plans, or even even just to do in your car? Have you been vaxxed? 
I have not been. My wife has gotten her first shot. And so we're hoping within a month she'll have gotten the second one. I am way back in the queue, but that's fine. I have no particular reason to be. I want to be vaccinated. But I have no reason I should be towards the front. But we're doing well in Delaware, at least. So if the supply exists, I feel like I'll probably be vaccinated by the summer. I have no plans. The athletic still is has to approve any trips at this point just for pandemic reasons. So it's probably a pretty good chance I'm not going anywhere until at least April. If my early spring training takes place in April, that might be the first time. I get out to see, you know, the, the splitting spring training, right? The major leagues, I don't need to see that as much. But once the minor league spring training starts and we can go do stuff on the backfields, I'm way more inclined to try to do that if we think it's safer. And I'm hoping by that point, the weather warms up, a greater portion of the population is vaccinated. Maybe it'll be a little bit safer to, to You don't want to go to Arizona or Florida right now? Nope. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll do some sort of super friends scouting department thing for draft stuff where just all of us are in different parts of the country and it's whatever we can drive to collude. Yeah, fine. (laughs) There's got to be somewhere in the mid Atlantic. There has to be a player I can go see for you. Yeah. yeah, Oh, there will be. Oh, yeah. 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 (laughs) All right. Thanks, man. Yep. My pleasure. This has been Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the program, tell a friend. You can help us out just by sharing the show. And if you'd really like to go above and beyond, check out that store over at Fangraphs.com. That'll do it for this episode. Thank you, and have a good weekend.